Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Hey out there in Doodle Land, it's Adina, and today I'm doing a podcast alone. No guest today. I really wanted to cover the topic of what to look for in a breeder, how to find a doodle breeder that is worth buying a puppy from. In times like these, it might not seem like the most important topic, but maybe this is the topic that's helpful now so that in the future, when you're deciding to go for doodle number two or three or doodle number one, you can have some important facts to go by and you can have some guidelines that will protect you as a buyer, but also protect puppies so that and dogs so that you buy from a breeder who's doing things on the up and up and responsible and reputable and is working to breed health and temperament into their doodles. Finding the right breeder, and we have we have an article on this. I might be reading some from this article, but with some extra tidbits here and there. We have an article about this on doodlekisses.com and I'll link to that in the show notes. So when I started out um, in the world of doodles, I was intent on getting a boxer. At least that was the breed that I was thinking about. Um, I had never had my own dog before. In fact, it was pretty amazing that I even wanted a dog (laughs) because I wasn't a dog person yet. I grew up with dogs, but not in a way that I would think about dogs now. So as a kid, we had two German Shepherds and they kind of scared me. I remember being more afraid of the female German Shepherd. Their names were Nero, I'll say it in Romanian, Nero and Piggy. I don't know why Piggy, maybe the Muppets. And so I was in Romania and my dad got himself a German Shepherd puppy. And I remember the old school days of seeing him get his nose rubbed in his pile of pee that he did in part of our house. Um, And they lived outdoors for the most part. That was kind of like how I grew up. And later in the U.S., we had various German Shepherds again, and they were outdoor dogs too. So the concept of having a dog that lives inside was kind of foreign to me. And at one point, I started dating a guy who is now my husband who had a Border Collie. And I was so dumb about dogs. Our Border Collie, I consider her ours now because After we got married, she lived a number of more years. She wasn't the typical black and white border collie. She was tricolored and she was short haired, so not the long haired. And to me, she looked like a German shepherd mix. She wasn't. She was a border collie. Um, But I was so dog dumb and breed dumb that I think I asked my poor husband, (laughs) like, what is she again? What breed is she? And people would ask me and I'd be like, I don't know. I think she's a German shepherd mix. And And now I'm like the crazy person who every time a dog walks past, you know, on the sidewalk, I'm like, oh, I know that's this breed. And my husband just rolls his eyes because I'm totally guessing or he thinks I am. But I know (laughs) I've studied my breed books. Anyway, um, the point being, I grew up with dogs as outdoor animals and I started dating my husband. And at that time, I was living in an apartment and he would come visit with his border collie, Cass. And I 
was so nervous. I just expected that dogs just randomly and without notice might go potty in the house. And so I was so worried that I would get in trouble by the landlord for having this dog visiting. And, you know, eventually I found out, hey, that's not how dogs work. <laughs> they do. They are house trained. And later when I was living elsewhere, I remember dog sitting for my boyfriend, now husband, and coming home and being greeted by this animal who was so excited to see me. Like I totally fell in love with the idea of dogs as being indoor pets. It was so lovely to come home and have Cass greet me excitedly. I remember taking her on a trip in the car to the pet store just for fun. And that was kind of like the big switch in my head. And I've come a long way since. So back when I thought, okay, I want to get a dog now, because <laughs> I had a house and a yard, I was thinking about boxers. And my husband said, then boyfriend, mentioned, hey, you should check out the Labradoodle. They're a mix between a lab and a poodle. And I Googled and was hooked. And what I really had in my mind was, um, I don't know if how many of you have heard of Bacher. He was like the famous F1 Labradoodle that was in, he was a model in Tommy Hilfiger ads and such. And he was this cream shaggy, shaggy dog. And I thought he was the epitome of Labradoodle and was, you know, intent on getting a female Labradoodle that looked just like him. Anyway, so I started Googling and it was in the process of my researching this Labradoodle that I started to learn about what it takes to buy a dog from a responsible breeder. I had never looked into these things before. So the more I look, looked, I'd learn, oh, breeders should do health testing. Oh, these are the health tests that are important for Labradoodles. Oh, these are the health tests that are you know, also important for Labradoodles because they come from poodles half of their genetics or more. And so little by little, I started to research and I developed a list of criteria that I wanted for my breeder. And it was amazing how many breeders existed all over the United States and some that had websites and, you know, lots of testimonials and famous people maybe who bought dogs from them. And there were, you know, some random small time breeders who, you know, barely had a website, had a listing somewhere. And trying to communicate with them all. I wrote to so many breeders and some of them were very helpful and provided a lot of information and some didn't. And I remember there was a breeder in Texas that I was communicating with and color was really important to me at that time. So I really wanted cream. Um, and I was communicating with this Texas breeder and there were there was a pair that was going to be bred that I was considering, but one of the males had one hip that was didn't have a good score. One hip had a good score and the other didn't. For some reason, this sticks out in my mind. And the breeder's reason for, you know, not being worried about this was that the dog had been in an accident at some point. And so they figured that was not a big deal. It was just due to the accident. But to me, that wasn't good enough because I wanted to be sure. So, you know, I passed on a lot of breeders for various reasons before I settled on the one that I did choose. And in that time, you know, I've learned more and more about what breeding is about, not because I've done it myself, but from talking to breeders and learning more and reading online. And so I think it's really important to do your due diligence, finding the right breeder to provide you with the doodle love of your life is a hard process. There's lots out there. And how do you know who's worth your time and money? And it's not just about money, because whatever, some people might have a lot of money to spend, <laughs> and other people might have less, but 
it's not really about the money that you're spending. It's about the fact that you're paying someone to give you a living creature. It's not just spending 3000 on a pair of shoes and who cares. It's you're paying 3000 for a living thing. And there's a lot of dogs in shelters and there's a lot of breeders. And why do that without knowing that, hey, this breeder is doing all they can to produce, create, breed a dog that is healthy and has a good temperament and is meets some kind of standard besides, you know, that breeder's preferences. So one thing that comes up, you know, when people are looking for breeders, they'll ask in a discussion group, hey, I'm looking for a doodle puppy in this time frame in this area. And then lots of people will pipe in and say, oh, my breeder is amazing. People, you know, fight to get dogs from her or, you know, I got one at this breeder and they don't charge too much and they, you know, have nice dogs. People will give you testimonials and references for practically anybody. And while references are important, and I don't think you should discount them because they might give you important information, they really need to be references that give you information about important things, not like my dog is amazing because any dog can be amazing. Any breeder can have positive references. There are lots of people, even members of Doodle Kisses and various Facebook groups who got their doodles from backyard breeders or even puppy mills, even though they didn't know it at the time, who ended up with wonderful dogs. So based simply on testimonials, you could jump to the conclusion that, let's say, a kennel called Pie in the Sky Kennels is a wonderful place to get a doodle because how could they not be when Susie and Bobby and Jane and Karen all got wonderful doodles from that kennel, right? Well, it's, it's not a good way to decide how to get a dog because simply knowing someone has a dog from Pie in the Sky Kennels and knowing that particular dog to be really cool doesn't mean that the breeder themselves is ethical or reputable or, you know, isn't fooling people under the guise of a pretty website. Females sometimes produce nice dogs. One of our longstanding members, Karen, her heart dog was an F1 Labradoodle that she got from um, rescue or shelter and its original owner had dumped it um, and they had originally got it from a puppy mill. So, you know, it did have health problems, but it was still a wonderful dog. So for every great Labradoodle or Golden Doodle or Bernie Doodle that comes out of some kind of ethical or unethical substandard breeding programs, there's many who suffer and end up in shelters, you know, who aren't great or end up in rescue because the breeders they came from sold them a bunch of lies and wouldn't take the dog back. So I caution everyone seeking a doodle to look past any kind of glowing testimonials and get down to the facts about the breeder. Dig deep and confirm that they're following the highest standards because if they're not, why breed? Why bring puppies out into this world if there isn't a standard or a goal or something that you're breeding toward that you know, you're doing all you can to achieve? There isn't a shortage um, and nobody owes us doodles, right? Just because I think, let's say, a Range Rover or a certain Mercedes or whatever is like amazing doesn't mean I am owed a Mercedes. So nobody's owed a doodle. Make sure that, you know, you're buying from someone reputable rather than just saying, well, I need one so bad. <laughs> I need this pair of shoes. It doesn't matter where it came from or, you know, what happened in its making. Check out um, Doodle Rescue Collective and iDog Rescue, or if you're in Texas, Doodle Rock Rescue. Um, there's probably a few others, but those are the main big doodle rescues in the United States. And at least two of them have doodles all spread out through the United States. They're not just in one area. 
So consider rescue, but rescue also isn't a, a program to supply people with doodles. It's to help doodles that are in need. So it's not enough that 10 or 100 people can say this breeder is amazing. It's also whether the breeder is committed to doing things as well as they should be doing. And keep in mind that adding a dog to your family means a potential 15-year investment of love, money, time, and dedication. Don't skimp on the puppy purchase because it could very likely cost you more money or time with your, or with your dog or both. So next, we're going to talk about the specifics. What should you look for in a breeder? So what should you look for in a breeder? I love talking about this. Number one, a responsible breeder doesn't sugarcoat the truth and sell false promises about doodles. Look, no matter how you look at it, a doodle is a mixed breed. It's a mutt, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it is. 50 years ago, nobody could sell a mixed breed for you know more than 50 bucks, if that. And now people are making $3,000 or more in a puppy. Yeah, there's some that are charging less, but usually they're also meeting fewer standards. Not always, but usually. So I think doodles are awesome dogs because I think golden retrievers are awesome and standard poodles are awesome and Labradors are awesome and Bernese mountain dogs are pretty cool too. So yeah, if you mix those, you're probably at least half the time going to get an awesome dog because dogs are awesome and their doodles aren't made from like vicious breeds or anything. But they're not a breed. They're not a consistent breed. You're not going to get a litter of dogs that look like each other necessarily. You're not going to get a litter of dogs that all have consistent temperaments. That's not even, it doesn't even happen that way in a pure breed. So if somebody is a standard poodle breeder and breeding for show or competition, all their dogs are not going to come out the same, even though to the untrained eye, yeah, they all look the same to me, right? If I look at a litter of standard poodles, they kind of all look the same, more or less. People who know standard poodles would be able to interact with the dogs and pick them up and look at them and say, oh, this one or this one or these three really stand out and have our show quality really look like they're going to meet the breed standard and the way in, the, in their conformation and shape and person temperament and all of that. So even within a pure breed, you're not going to get, you know, like I talked about before, a brand a replicated brand that looks exactly the same no matter where it comes from. Different breeders kind of have slightly different body styles or noses or whatever. So even more so in doodles because they're mixed. They're a mixed breed. So the variety is huge. One doodle does not equal another, does not equal another. And one being in the world of doodles, it's so easy to start to think that, oh, this is a doodle trait. All doodles are silly or all doodles are floppy or all doodles play differently like doodles play differently with doodles than other dogs and maybe that's true maybe there's an aspect that they notice the big furriness but I doubt that it's actually true you know if someone were to do a scientific study about how doodles play with other dogs versus other dogs play with other dogs there's probably not that big of a difference realistically because there isn't such thing as a doodle gene there are genes from the parents, but there's no doodle inherent quality. So you can't make a blanket statement about them. There's a lot of myths floating about, but good breeders wouldn't promote those myths. For example, promising non-shedding. Really, the only non-shedding part of a doodle is the standard poodle or the miniature poodle. There's no nothing else that you can really guarantee is non-shedding. Are there higher generation doodles and Australian Labradoodles that don't shed? Sure, absolutely. But I think it's not something you can promise um, outright. 
hypoallergenic is misleading too. Even though hypo, the word, the root means lower, lower allergenic, most people think of that as a dog that will not exacerbate allergies. So using hypoallergenic about doodles is misleading because many doodles, even multigens, can shed. Some do shed. But even outside of the shedding, no dog is truly guaranteed to not exacerbate allergies because no two people have the exact allergic response. Even poodles. I had a coworker once who was allergic to poodles, and if a poodle licked her or she touched a poodle, she would break out in hives. And so most people who are allergic to dogs are allergic to the protein in the dander or protein in the saliva. So dogs who shed are naturally going to be shedding more dander and dogs like poodles who kind of have curly coats and don't shed, that dander is going to stay closer to the skin, isn't going to be shedding all over the place. But it's not the hair itself that's allergenic. Dogs with furry coats that act like Velcro can also bring in pollen and leaves and all sorts of things from the outdoors that somebody might be allergic to. So it's not as simple. You know, it's not, it's not a makeup. It's not a foundation or lip gloss, you know, those kinds of things maybe you can say hypoallergenic about, but it's it's a dog, it's an animal. So kind of not a realistic thing to look for. Other misleading claims about doodles would include perfect family dog, easy to train, super obedient. You know, the doodles might have these qualities, but they might not. A lot of doodles are ending up, particular golden, particularly golden doodles are ending up in doodle rescue because of reacting to children or bites or, you know, having temperaments that are out of control. And that doesn't mean, you know, the dog is bad. It's a mix and it's going to have variety and it's going to have more variety than a purebreed is going to have. So you can't expect it to fit into this mold. Doodles look like teddy bears, but they're not teddy bears. They're actual dogs with teeth who, if mistreated or not brought up properly, can develop bad habits and can develop aggression and bullying behaviors. Uh, Many Doodle Kisses members, and I'm sure lots can attest on Facebook and elsewhere, struggle with training issues like countersurfing, pulling on leash, jumping on people. I mean, they're not inherently bad doodle qualities. They're dog qualities. Any dog can learn to pull on leash and jump on people and countersurf, including doodles. So it's not like the teddy bear is just going to sit there looking cute on the couch like they do on Instagram photos. They're going to be you know, they can be crazy and wild and hyper just like any other dog. So it takes a commitment and effort to train a doodle as with any other typical family dog. Now you may have run, you know, the first encounter you may have had with a doodle may have been a dog whose owners worked hard to train it. And so when you saw this perfectly sweet teddy bear of a dog, it may have been because those owners worked their butts off to get a dog that behaves in public. It may have been that they got lucky and they just got a mellow, chill dog. But remember, that is not a perfect representation of all doodles. That is one dog that you met. So a responsible breeder doesn't claim that doodles are the perfect dog. As much as I love doodles, and I like the shaggy look, I like the facial hair, I like the, you know, teddy bear Muppet look. I think it's adorable. As much as I love doodles because they have that physical appearance and goofiness, That comes from the poodle and from the Labrador and from the golden retriever and whatever else is in there. And I can't imagine anyone not thinking they're darling. They're not for everyone. Responsible doodle breeders know the pros of having a doodle and they know the cons of owning this mix and that not all dogs are going to be the right fit for all people, even if those people think the dogs are cute. And I think anyone breeding a certain breeder mix 
should think the mix or breed they're breeding is amazing. When I interviewed Jane Killian of Puppy Culture, um, she's a breeder of bull terriers. She loves bull terriers and she fully admits that they are a hard dog to handle and they're stubborn and they're not particularly biddable. So she knows this about them and still loves them. And I think it's important for you to get a sense that the breeder isn't just like so excited to make a sale, but that, that they're actually creating some space between you and the sale, them and the sale and screening you and making sure you're ready for a dog period, let alone a dog that is a working breed that's a high energy breed. So yeah, you want to be sure that the breeder isn't just ready to make a sale, but that even though they're glowing about doodles, they're realistic and not just trying to get someone to buy their dog. A good breeder also doesn't claim that hybrid vigor makes them immune to common breed diseases. Now, I haven't heard too much of that term going around now. I think it was more common in the early days of doodles. Um, breeder websites would say, well, because this mix of two different breeds, they have hybrid vigor, so to speak. And that refers to when two different species or types of something are mixed, they're healthier than their originating parents. And that's true maybe for cattle or something like that. But in general, in dogs, if you're breeding two dogs that have the potential for hip dysplasia, hip dysplasia doesn't go away. <laughs> There's a lot of things, you know, if you're breeding a dog that has um, a certain genetic disease that's inheritable, it doesn't matter if the other dog doesn't have it, it might still get passed on or create dogs that carry the disease to pass it on to uh, future generations. So there's nothing magic in mixing two breeds. All doodles can inherit the diseases that are common in their parents, labs, goldens, poodles, etc. Point number two, a responsible breeder only breeds dogs that have passed rigorous health testing. So what does this mean? This is, I think, one of the biggest points of contention and where I have struggle sometimes to find when I've been looking for breeders to find someone who meets my my personal definition of rigorous health testing. This means way more than yearly vet checkups. So if the only health testing done on the parent dogs is that they go to the vet every year and get a clean bill of health, that is not what we're talking about here. That's not enough. It also doesn't mean just DNA testing. Now that so many companies are offering canine DNA testing, I'm seeing more breeders that are offering only that. Here's the thing with DNA testing. There are certain diseases in standard poodles, in retrievers that, can, that are common and can be ruled out by DNA testing. There's also like 160 some DNA tests that can be done that really don't have much relevance, that they don't, you know, they're not things that you see often anyway, and they're not necessarily common in the doodle parent breeds. So they they don't mean anything. So if a dog has been cleared for 170 canine genetic diseases, eh, that's great, but those aren't the big ones. They don't have tests for epilepsy. They don't have tests for cancer risk. They don't have, they don't have tests for autoimmune conditions or allergies or atopic dermatitis and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of things you can't test for. Now, between the DNA testing and the things you can't test for, there's some other tests that are important that if you were to look at a reputable show breeder of standard poodles or golden retrievers, you would see these tests. So you want to see them in doodle breeds too. Two dogs can seem perfectly healthy on the outside and can even pass their yearly vet checkups with flying colors, but we've got to look deeper than that because there's a number of conditions that can be passed down to puppies. 
for starters, ask to see proof that they have passing OFA or pen hip hip, hip scores on both parents. Since any large breed dog, it's not really as big of a problem for minis, but it can be. But standards and mediums might still get hip dysplasia. So hip dysplasia is not something that's black and white. You can't rule it out with a DNA test. Even testing parents doesn't guarantee that one offspring will not get hip dysplasia at some point, but it stacks the decks in your dog's favor. Now, OFA hip testing is sort of like the gold standard. It's the testing that breeders have been doing forever and ever. And OFA stands for Orthopedic Foundation for Animals. You can Google that. The OFA gives a score based on the confirmation of the hip. So it starts off from the healthy end for excellent hips, then it goes down to good, then it goes down to fair, then it goes down to like borderline, and then various levels of hip dysplasia. Now, nobody should be breeding a dog with any level of hip dysplasia, but it's not uncommon to see dogs bred anywhere from fair to excellent. Personally, because I like big dogs, for me, a fair score is not good enough just because it, it makes me nervous, I guess. So it's important to think about, okay, are you getting a big dog? Or are you getting a small dog? If you like big dogs, how do you feel about one or both of the parents having a fair hip score? I don't know. I mean, you can't, it's not as simple as breeding a fair to an excellent and somehow you get in the middle. You can breed two good, good hip dogs and still end up with a puppy that later develops hip dysplasia. So it's not a black and white thing. So for me, for my comfort, I would not want a puppy from two parents that didn't have at least a good hip score. And if there's an option between two excellence and two goods, I'm picking the two excellence just in case. OFA is imperfect, but it's still one of the most common ways to get hip scores on the dogs. Now, a breeder can get preliminary scores from the OFA at any age, essentially, um, I shouldn't say that. There's probably some minimum age, but they can do it um, before the final hip score age of two years old. So once a dog is 24 months, they can get official final scores. Before that, they're considered preliminary scores. What I'm seeing a lot with doodle breeders is that they will test dogs six months to a year and get preliminary scores and kind of stop there and not wait for the two-year mark to get the official and frankly, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, okay, the honest truth is I don't like that. There's probably a high correlation between a six-month score and a two-year score, right? Like if a dog is excellent at six months, it's probably not going to have hip dysplasia at two years. But for me, it's why not do things to the standards that have been established? Why cut corners there? Why be hurried when there's no reason to breed a dog under two years old? That's my opinion. I think you can probably find good support for that, but that's my opinion. But why not wait a little longer, get official hip scores, and then breed the dog after it's two years old? Really know its adult personality. Really know what it can do. Give it a chance to get a CGC, which is a canine good citizen certificate, to kind of prove that, hey, this dog, you know, is good in public. It's, it has a good temperament. Why not, you know, put a higher obedience title? I mean, these are breeding dogs. They should be proven to be therapy dogs or to um, have obedience titles or other dog sport titles. I think 
to me, that's really important. And it's one thing that I've seen missing with doodle breeders is that they will go by subjective evaluation of temperament. In other words, like their feelings about the dog. Yes, this dog has a nice temperament to pass on. It's really sweet. Its owners love it. And I, that's not bad, but it's someone else's opinion. I haven't met this dog. I can't evaluate it for myself. Whereas a dog that has a CGC or a novice obedience title or has a therapy dog um, registration with a major therapy dog organization, that gives me a little more knowledge, like more facts on that dog. And this doesn't mean necessarily that a breeder is breeding dogs irresponsibly. It's just something I would love to see. Now, pen hip scores are slightly different. And one of these days I need to get an expert on to talk about this. But pen hip was developed at Pennsylvania State, I believe. And instead of evaluating the hip based on confirmation, kind of how it's shaped and how the socket fits in the joint and all that, the joint fits in the socket, it looks at laxity the looseness of the hips. So dogs with tighter hips scores are better in terms of hip health and dogs with looser hips, you know, that's a dog you don't want to breed. And they score it differently. differently. They score it on an index from zero to one. So one would be really bad. (laughs) It would be super loose hips and zero is impossible, obviously. And so most dogs are, you know, between 0.3 and 0. Point something. They're not, you know, 0 or 1. Now, 0.5 would be average. It'd be like the 50th percentile. And so sometimes you'll see results shown as my the dog is in the 50th or 70th percentile. And sometimes you'll see results as 0. Point something to actually reflect, reflect the index score. And like with all percentiles on test scores, you want to be in the highest percentile for the breed. And when it comes to the index, you want the smallest number possible. So when I've looked at some of the research on pen hip, breeding a dog with 0.3 index score or lower is actually ideal. But the average for breeds like standard poodles and Labradors is closer to 0.5, somewhere around there, give or take. And so if a breeder were to only breed dogs with a hip score of 0.3 or better, it would severely limit the gene pool. So that's asking a lot. But for me personally, I'd want to see better than average with pen hip. I want to see less than 0.5. I want to see 0.4, 0.45, 0.35, something like that. That's my opinion. And so what I've tried to look for is if a dog has OFAs that are fair or good, or let's just say good. And these are preliminaries. I want to also see a pen hip score on that same dog that shows tight hips. So if they're, if they're done, if the OFA is a preliminary, not a final, and it's good or better, I still want to see that other to be sure. And that's hard to find. A lot of breeders will post these results on their website. A few breeders will actually have the certificate that's downloadable. So you can see the actual certified results. Many breeders won't share those with you if they're not on their website. And the reason I've heard is they're they're worried that prospective buyers might not be asking for the right reasons and might be asking for these documents in order to change the names and like where you're faking certificates. So again, I'm I don't like that reason. I don't like that excuse because there are show breeders who have dogs that are worth a lot of money and 
they post their results online or they will send the results to the person asking. It's not a big deal. The other thing is, is that with OFA, if a dog is registered with OFA and they've had official scoring, breeders can submit those scores back to OFA and they're listed on the OFA website. So if you were to look up a kennel name, let's say we were talking about my imaginary pie in the sky kennels, you could do a search for pie in the sky and you would get a list of all the dogs in my imaginary kennel and their hip scores. So I would like to see more doodle breeders putting their scores up there because if they have a score from OFA, post it. You can't forge the website listing. So ask for proof. I think the more us buyers demand proof, the more doodle breeders are going to say, hey, this is important. This is important. It's something that our buyers really want. And they're not going to, we're not going to settle for just taking someone's word before giving them $3,000. Oh, you want hip scores. You want to ask for proof of eye clearances. So there are some eye diseases that good breeders rule out through annual eye testing. Now, this isn't just going to the vet. This is a certified canine ophthalmologist that checks eyes for specific defects. And you want to ask for proof of these eye clearance. And they should be done annually. Um, I can understand, you know, some breeders doing it every 18 months. I've heard um, some of the breed organizations say that because some of their breeders live on islands or something where it's hard to get to the mainland fine, every 18 months. Still, it shouldn't be something that you do just once. So you should have eye clearances annually through SERF, which is spelled C-E-R-F. Again, you can look that up on the OFA website and see when those eye clearances were done. Or PRA. PRA, I think, is a DNA, DNA test that rules out progressive retinal atrophy, something like that. I'm not a details person, <laughs> but some things I am. Anyway, um, so that has to be done annually, and PRA is a genetic test that you only need to do once because if you're clear, you're clear. Von Willebrand's is often spelled VWD. Von Willebrand's disease is a bleeding disorder similar to hemophilia, and it is more common in standard poodles than retrievers, but it can be found in Goldens too, so you want to see that genetic clearance. DM is a progressive neurological disease that you can get it in standard poodles or some of the retrievers, so you want to roll that out with a DNA test. Beyond that, many other things, you know, are just vet clearances. So to review, there's hip scores, there's annual eye clearances, you want certain DNA tests done. Standard poodles have um, another two diseases that are common in the breed. One is sebaceous adenitis and the other one is Addison's disease. Sebaceous adenitis is a skin disease that is pretty, pretty complicated to deal with regularly. It can be dealt with. Obviously, people do it, but it kind of sucks. And the other one is an autoimmune, which also requires regular shots, possibly steroids. It's another thing that costs quite a bit to deal with on a regular basis. So and these things run in poodles. And so my concern with doodle breeders is since they are not poodle breeders and aren't showing and involved in the world of poodles, do they know their poodle lines well enough to be able to say, hey, I, you know, I know this line and it's really low in, in these diseases. And sometimes stuff happens, right? Sometimes really good standard poodle breeders will end up with SA or Addison's. You can't 100% rule it out, but you can do a good job of keeping your lines mostly clear of that. So 
one of the things is you want to get a sense that your doodle breeder really knows their parent breeds and knows the conditions that are common. So that's all for now. We will talk about the other points of what to look for in a breeder next. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. Number three, a responsible breeder doesn't sell or breed many different breeds. How many different breeds does the breeder that you're looking at actually breed? Responsible breeders typically stick to one or two breeds and do those excellently. If you're on a website and you notice that the company or the breeder or whatever, you know, kennel name that you're looking at has all sorts of breeds on the website, that is definitely a red flag. If the breeder is breeding every single kind of poodle mix, or it's breeding Cavapoos and Labradoodles and Bernie Doodles and Minis and Standards and all these kinds of, you know, different breeds, that's a really big red flag. Similarly, how many dogs are actually on the property? Sometimes you can't even tell. Sometimes it's really hard to even see who the parent dogs are. They just list puppies. That's also a very big red flag. Are they essentially just a huge commercial kennel, possibly um, a website that is the front for a puppy mill? It's possible to put out good dogs while you have, you know, lots of dogs on your property. But realistically, those of you listening probably own one to three dogs. There might be a few of you who have more than that. But can you imagine actually whelping litters, raising litters responsibly while having 30 adult dogs on your property? Or imagine having several dogs that are all pregnant and thinking about having three or four or five, six litters to whelp around the same time. All of the puppy handling, all of the cleaning up, all of the managing the moms, all of that that you'd have to do on your own as a breeder. Now, I recognize some breeders are a bigger operation and they have um, state-of-the-art facilities, so to speak, and they've got staff that helps with this. I have my own opinions about that. It's not what I prefer. I prefer to know that a breeder is hands-on on each litter and that they can give each litter time and attention. And it's not a big production facility that it is, you know, one or two litters a year at least no more than one to two letters at a time. So it's highly doubtful that any of the parent dogs get the love, attention, and training they would if they were family pets, if they're in this huge facility, even if they're staff. It's just not the same. And realistically, it's not an easy feat to find dogs, healthy dogs that have impeccable temperaments, that have excellent health, that have the right confirmation and meet the breed standard for any any kind of multi-gen 
dogs that are really worth breeding because it's not just, it's a nice dog and it's cute. There should be more to a dog that you're breeding or that a breeder is breeding than just cuteness. Dogs that are worth breeding, they're hard to find. They don't pop up in abundance in every litter. So it's hard to find a few, let alone a huge number of them. So it's got to make you wonder, how can they have so many dogs that are amazing and worthy of breeding? When you look at the types of breeders, like the standards that breeders have set over the years in pure breeds, and I always compare to that because that's what we have got to compare to. Doodles are fairly new phenomenon that break a lot of rules in many ways. So let's say a standard poodle breeder who shows and competes with their dogs. Or if you're, if you think showing is a bad thing, okay, let's say competes in agility or competes in any kind of dog sport or puts therapy dog titles on their dogs and does actual therapy work with their dogs. Those types of breeders, they're not breeding tons of litters every year. They're focusing on the dogs that they have, proving their worth, enjoying them as pets and doing dog things with their dogs, knowing the breed inside and out, participating in breed clubs. Like that is their hobby, their passion. And so they know a standard poodle breeder who either shows in confirmation or competes in in sports, they're dog people, they're poodle people. They know the poodle people and they interact with them and their dogs participate in them like in activities. And so they're out there doing their things and proving their dogs and enjoying having these dogs as pets. So after they've gotten their championships, after they've gotten all their health testing, then finally by age two, sometimes three or four, they might have a litter because they want to continue this line that they've worked so hard to build to continue to find the next generation of standard poodle, for example, that's going to also win agility titles or confirmation titles to prove that they're meeting the breed standard or prove that they're great at agility. So they're like, these amazing designers, you would say, who want to create one amazing product and then create their next product from that product. That didn't quite make sense, but you know what I mean, I think. They're not thinking of it as, how can I make lots of puppies to fill the world with my wonderful dogs? No, they're they're in it for the love of their breed and enjoying their own dogs and creating the next generation from that. And so they're not breeding tons of litters every year. They, you might get lucky one year even finding a litter bred at all by some of these breeders with very high standards who are doing things with their dogs. A responsible breeder doesn't breed a dam or stud before the age of two. This is also controversial when it comes to the divide between the pure breed breeders and doodle breeders. And what I've heard is that one of the reasons um, or supposedly it is healthier to breed a dog, a dog young and stop sooner. And somehow for the actual um, dam or sire, it is better to, you know, get it out of the way and then be done in a shorter amount of time and not to skip heats, etc. Now, this is something I need to look into and really see the research on. If I find anything, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but in the meantime, this is something that may make sense for the actual breeding dog. Perhaps. And I don't know if this is truly the case. Perhaps it's healthier for them to start early and young and be done sooner. Maybe, let's say, maybe that's correct. But when it comes to health testing and weeding out genetic diseases and inherited diseases that don't have DNA tests, it is not better. It's not better for the breed. It's not better for puppy buyers. It's not better for the dogs that are being produced because a lot of things can be missed if a dog is bred before the age of two. 
There's a lot of conditions like atopic dermatitis or allergies, um, epilepsy, all sorts of things that don't really become an issue till a little bit later in midlife. Now, that doesn't mean that it makes sense to keep a dam until she's five to breed her. That might not make sense. But definitely breeding before the age of two. The dog isn't even like a fully mature adult dog in larger breeds. And so I think it's valuable to wait until a dog is two or slight, you know, three or four in order to really see what that dog is like. Their full temperament as an adult dog, to see them come into their own, to kind of better rule out certain conditions that don't show up before the age of two. So that's one reason why I say um, I personally would never buy um, a puppy from parent dogs that were under two. If either one is under two, it, it makes me think, what, what's the hurry? Is this breeder just, just like chomping at the bit to make money and get these dogs bred? Is there some other reason? What are their reasons for waiting or not waiting? Number five, a responsible breeder offers a decent health warranty. And this is to protect you and to show that they stand behind their dogs. Most warranties are called health guarantees, but for the sake of clarity, I want to make sure everybody understands a breeder can't truly guarantee anything, but they can give you a warranty. Every breeder should offer the short-term health warranty. That's three to five days on basic puppy health. That requires you to go see the vet right away. But a really responsible breeder who stands behind what they're producing will also offer a minimum of two-year health warranty on the puppy that you purchase. The best I've seen is with a standard poodle breeder in the South that has a five-year health warranty. Um, I think there's a couple others I ran across that have that. And something could go wrong, but they stand behind their dogs. Anything less than two years is really, really not helpful because most hereditary conditions take time to develop, even hip dysplasia. It has to be pretty bad so that a dog needs surgery before they're two years old. So read the health warranty as if your puppy has now developed hip dysplasia at a year of age. Let's just imagine. What compensation would you want? And ideally, you would get reimbursed for at least half the money, if not all, that you spent on the dog to help you with those vet bills because surgery for hip dysplasia is costly. Would you really want to return the dog that you now love? Sure, your dog has hip dysplasia, but a year in, this is your dog. You are in love with it and you care about it. And you don't, you're, it's not a, you know, an object that you just send in for a replacement. Would reimbursement with a new puppy really help you now that you have big vet, vet bills? Not at all. So look carefully at what the health warranty offers, what it excludes and what it includes and see if that's something that sits well with you if you would ever need to use it. Number six, a responsible breeder only sells puppies that are old enough. Now, old enough means a minimum of eight weeks. There are actually states that have puppy lemon laws and prohibit the sale of puppies under eight weeks. And for good reason. Don't fall for the line that, well, they've been weaned and mom barely wants to be with them. That may be true about the weaning and their mom's interest, but there's crucial social development and bite inhibition learning that's happening up until eight weeks. And some dogs might need a little bit more. We interviewed one um, expert who had shared about a theory. One theory is that puppies that stay a little bit longer with their mom are less likely to have separation anxiety because mom 
leaves for a little while, but comes back. Then she leaves for longer and comes back. And she kind of weans them off of needing her without just completely disappearing. If you bring home a six-week-old puppy, you risk that puppy is going to have some social delays, might be more nippy, might simply not know normal ways to interact with other dogs in, in a healthy, normal ways, um, be harder to potty train, maybe have more separation anxiety. So there's a lot of reasons why it's not a good idea to bring home a six-week-old puppy. And so that's a question you want to ask the breeder. How long do you keep the puppies? If they say, oh yeah, they're ready by six or seven weeks, that's a red flag. Or if they're letting you choose the puppy, you know, soon after it's born, I would say that's a red flag too, even if the puppy stays for eight weeks, because you really can't tell much about a dog except maybe the coat or color until that dog is seven weeks. So I would add, this isn't really, it's not in the printout or it's not in the article, but I would highly recommend you choose a breeder who actually waits till that puppy is seven or eight weeks before they choose the home for the puppy. And I suppose if you lived next door to the breeder and you were able to visit, great. <laughs> that, you know, maybe that way you can kind of get a feel for which puppy you like. But most people don't live really close to their breeder. Most people have to trust the breeder that they have eyes on those dogs and they've watched them for seven or eight weeks and they have a good idea of the type of personality that they have, their energy level, what kind of family they would be good for. I, I think that's very valuable. I mentioned that I wanted a creamy female Labradoodle early on with my first doodle, and I had my heart set on that. And the litter that my Roscoe was born with, my first Labradoodle that I had all to myself, he there was four puppies in that litter. There was Roscoe, a giant red curly looking puppy. He looked really funny. He looked like this little old man, had an old soul kind of face. There was a sort of sort of creamy a little more tan female another creamy tan female and sort of like a apricot male after the temperament testing and possibly the breeder could tell this even before that roscoe the big giant red one and the other male they were kind of middle of the road temperaments the two females were opposite ends one was super hyper and the other one is very shy so immediately that ruled out the female for me. I didn't want a very hyper dog and I didn't want a shy dog. That was not going to work because I wanted to do therapy with my future Labradoodle. So I had the choice between the two males. And just because the big red boy was so different looking, I couldn't help but pick him. So, and it was a wonderful choice <laughs> in the end. He was a fabulous dog. So those are some things to consider. In the article that I will link you to, there's also a nice graphic that gives you bullet points. Um, some other issues to consider that are just important to have in the back of your mind. What are the parent dogs like? When I choose, when I'm thinking about choosing a puppy, I'm thinking about the parents. And as I've looked through breeder websites and have thought at different times that I might be ready for a new puppy, I'm thinking about, okay, I like this sire. And these two um, mama dogs, I like their size. I like what I've read about their personality. I like that they have maybe a CGC or do therapy work or that they live with children and they're good with the kids. Those might be descriptors that help me lean toward a certain coupling. I don't think I would ever be comfortable putting a deposit down and not knowing who the parents were from the very beginning. 
I want to see that. If you can meet the parents, that is absolutely ideal. This is where recommendations from others come in handy. When you can't physically visit the property, if you have testimonials for pe- from people who have met the dogs that you are thinking of getting a puppy from, I think that's helpful. They can say, yeah, that dog was kind of hyper or, oh, no, it was the sweetest mama dog and blah, blah, blah. But I recommend, if possible, making a day's drive over to visit, if possible, because you're committing to 15-year relationship with the dog, hopefully. So a weekend trip is totally worth it. And right now with coronavirus, probably not a possibility, but hopefully in the future. Now with regular, let's say standard poodle or golden retriever breeders, on all those breed club websites, they recommend visiting the breeder and meeting the parent dogs, all of them. In the world of doodles, you'll find that doodle breeders don't want visitors and will say that it's because they don't want parvo and they don't want, you know, people bringing in lots of germs and diseases into their home. And outside of the coronavirus era right now, I can see where that would make sense because doodle breeders tend to breed, have more litters on the ground throughout the year than a um, pure breed breeder that is reputable. But it's still something that I find difficult to wrap my mind around that I would potentially put down $3,000 or $2,000 or whatever, sight unseen, not meeting the parents, not speaking face-to-face with the breeder, the breeder not speaking face-to-face with me. If anything, in this technology age, I think the least that could be offered and something you could ask for is, can I Skype? Can I Zoom call with you? Can I, you know, do FaceTime and see where the puppies are? Meet the parents, have you interact with them? I think that's fair. And breeders, I suppose, could select who gets to do that. It, you know, who want, if you're a breeder and you're breeding a lot and this is your livelihood, I can see how it'd be a pain to have to, when you're getting constant calls because there's a lot of people interested in your dogs, it would be exhausting to have to constantly talk to people on Skype or whatever. But I think that would be something worth worth trying. Another question to consider is how are puppies raised? What does the breeder do for early socialization and enrichment as the puppies develop? The last podcast we had, we had Jane Killian, who has developed Puppy Culture, a program for raising puppies and a video. A lot of doodle breeders I've noticed are using this, and it seems like a wonderful program. It's a lot more than ENS, early neurological stimulation. From what I understand, ENS is a very short-term early on thing that breeders can do, whereas puppy culture and other methods for socializing and enriching the puppies as they develop are, you know, span the whole time that they're there. So are puppies raised in a barn with just the mama dog and some cows nearby? Are they in a kennel? Do they meet children? Do they you know, get taken around the world somehow so that they can interact with different sounds and see different things? Are they handled a lot? Who plays with them? What's What kind of toys and things are in their area? Puppies raised in a house, in the kitchen, in the living room, where they can learn the sights and sounds of home living are going to be better socialized. They're going to be better ready to be family pets. And that's what I recommend, you know, making sure that these puppies have tons of enrichment and are raised to be house dogs. Another question is, what is the breeder's spay and neuter policy? There are a lot of breeders out there that are doing early spay neuter or ESN. Early spay neuter means that puppies are getting spayed or neutered at about seven weeks. And the thinking is, 
they bounce back faster. It's so easy. It keeps people from breeding dogs they shouldn't be breeding. You don't have to worry about it later. Those are legitimate reasons, I guess. However, it's still controversial and it's worth looking into the pros and cons of this procedure. One possible reason for concern is the bone health and joint health of the dog. There is research that is pretty convincing, in my opinion, that dogs who are spayed or neutered before six months tend to have a higher incidence of joint and bone problems and growth issues. And I personally plan to wait next time I get a dog, wait until after that dog has has reached a year before I spay or neuter that dog. I think those hormones seem to play an important role in development and bone and joint stability and strength. And that's enough reason to, to wait for me. Now, your situation might be such that the idea of having a, a dog that's in heat or could go after dogs in heat is just untenable, unthinkable. Fine. I think that's something that you should read more about and find out if it's worth it to you especially a large breed dog. Large breed dogs really need those hormones so that their joints are healthy for the long term. Another thing to think about is, is the breeder asking as many questions of you as you're asking the breeder? Are they really trying hard to make sure this, this puppy is going to go to a responsible person? Is the questionnaire long? Are they asking about how you're going to train the dog and potty training and all sorts of things? You want a breeder that's picky because that means that they are solid and they care about where the puppies go and they're there for you. What's the breeder's return policy? A puppy is not a toaster. So obviously, hopefully you're going into this not planning to ever return your dog, but a responsible breeder wants that dog to come back to them and not end up in um, rescue, not end up in a shelter, not end up from home to home to home. So it's important that your breeder states somewhere in the contract that they will take your puppy back or dog back, adult dog back at any time for any reason. That is a responsibility. That's a responsibility. That's care. That's commitment. And that's a breeder worth supporting. So choose a breeder with high standards to review. Um, the main points are a breeder shouldn't sugarcoat the truth and sell false promises. A breeder only breeds dogs who have passed rigorous health testing. A responsible breeder doesn't sell many different breeds, doesn't breed dogs before the age of two offers a decent health warranty, and only sells puppies that are old enough. So that's the sum of it. In the article, you'll find links to Worldwide Australian Labradoodle Association, a premium breeder list, the goldendoodles.com breeder list, Golden Doodle Association of North America breeder list, and Australian Labradoodle Association of America breeder members list. Now, this is not an endorsement for any of those breeders, but it's a place to start. And most of those breeders at least do some health testing and you can take it from there to weed out who has the parent dogs and program that you think is going to be amazing for you. Hope this is helpful. Feel free to email me with any questions at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. 
Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.